In 2003, director Peter Jackson returns to give the world an epic conclusion to one of the most revered trilogies in cinematic history. In 2021, after four seasons, we finally try the granddaddy of them all. The film is The Lord of the Rings Return of the King. The whiskey is Pappy Van Winkle, 15 year. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week, we are wrapping up season four. Brad, this is our regular season finale here. Movie number 32 for the season. And we're going out with a bang here with Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West! Yeah, it's a wild world that we live in, Bob. (laughs) Like, we, we have seen this through multiple presidents. We've seen it through a pandemic. Yeah. Like this podcast is is pretty much invulnerable at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's it is truly a a time capsule of our moment in history. Is it not? <laughs> yeah. You know, the podcast where we talk about movies and whiskeys from other from like 70 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, before we jump oh, in, today, first of all, I just I want to say I just got back from. Uh, my local library, where the movie critic Leonard Moulton was giving a talk. And, the more you know. Yeah. And, you know, I got to say, like, Leonard Moulton was the first movie critic that I was ever aware of growing up. Um, when I was really little, my parents, you know, sent away for these VHS tapes of The Little Rascals. They they released, like, all The Little Rascals shorts on VHS. And Leonard Moulton had written a book about The Little Rascals. And so he was on every single one of the tapes giving introductions. And he was the first person that I was ever aware of that, like, his job was just loving movies. And it was it was so cool to learn that at a young age. Like, you can love this piece of art, this this little thing we call a movie, so much that it can become your job to just talk about how much you love movies. And Brad, it just like reignited once again how much I love movies. Watching this man, he now has Parkinson's disease and he came and talked about having Parkinson's a bit. Um, and watching this man on stage who is, you know, is in the throes of this degenerative disease. And he just told stories about interviewing Catherine Hepburn and talking with all these Hollywood legends, how he met Fred Astaire. And just watching the smile on his face, he was like a little kid and talking about how he met all these famous figures in history. And little did he know, like, to me, he was one of those famous figures. So it was just it was such a cool thing. And I've been thinking about it all night, man. And I just feel seriously so privileged to just do this thing that we call the podcast 
and be able to come here and talk to you about how much I love movies, man. Like, thank you for going on this ride with me. Thank you, Film and Whiskey Nation, for continuing to listen to us ramble about movies. But like, there is nowhere else that I would rather be right now than talking with you about this movie, Brad. Yeah, dude, I it that is an eventful night, Bob. Mm-hmm. I also had an eventful night. <laughs> I, I. <I've, laughs> Did you hear how my sentiment just died on the vine there, film and whiskey? I was like, Brad, found, there's nowhere else on earth I'd rather be, and Brad's like, Yeah, cool. <laughs> Bob, I found a really good peanut butter stout tonight. And I'm pumped about it. I hate you so much. <laughs> I take back everything I said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dude, you don't get it. It's really tasty. Yeah. All right. Fine. And it's from Cleveland. Well, there it is. So. All right, man. Well, you've already disappointed <laughs> me enough. So let's just jump right into talking about this movie here. It, here's the thing, Bob. I 100% wanted to tell you this epic story about me trying to find this damn peanut butter stout for like weeks now. And I finally got it tonight. Uh, and I, I like had this all planned out to tell you about it. And then you just had the cutest story in the world <laughs> that was just like touching and meaningful. And I knew in my soul, I just had to ruin it. Yeah. Well, so. what, what you're really saying is you knew in your soul that your peanut butter stout story was was not stacking up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. But I still had to tell it. And instead of telling the actual story, I just had to be petty about yeah, it. I feel it, man. <laughs> so listen, if you recall, if you've been listening throughout the season, you know that we actually started the season with The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. We weren't going to do Return of the King until next year, but Brad and I were kind of brainstorming and we wanted to do something different starting with season five. And so in season five, what we're actually doing, Brad and I have each come up with a list of 15 movies that are near and dear to our hearts or movies that we remember liking as kids or, you know, something we watched as a teenager that spoke to us. Not necessarily like classic movies, not necessarily the movies we would normally talk about on this podcast. And so all next season, we're just going to go through one by one on our lists and rewatch these movies uh, that were significant to us in the past and see if they hold up. And that meant that we kind of had to rearrange some stuff. So we decided to drop one movie out of our season four lineup and plug in The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King as our finale here. Brad, I, I don't know what I'm more pumped for. Uh, season five's lineup, which is going to be really fun to go through or getting to talk about Return of the King, you know, a couple months earlier than we had planned. Well, I'm a sucker for immediate pleasure, so uh, <laughs> I'm going to vote for Return of the King, Bob. <laughs> Well, then let's jump into it, man. You know, obviously, we have both watched these movies a hundred times. Like, I I was obsessed with the Lord of the Rings movies when I was a teenager. I had not revisited Return of the King in a really long time. And I have lots of thoughts. But, Brad, I, I guess I want to hear, even before we jump into Brad Explains, what are your kind of immediate takeaways from this watch through of Return of the King? Well, this is a watch through where I sat down with the extended version and I and I just you keep I doing just, that. You got to stop watching through. the extended ones, man. They're so long. Now, I will say that the uh, I, this is actually something cool to me about the extended edition. The entire runtime for the regular movie is like three hours and 21 minutes. The runtime for the extended is four hours and 23 minutes. Yikes. Now, 
one might normally say that, wow, Brad, that's like 62 minutes longer than the regular edition. It is not, Bob. There is about 20 plus minutes. I I clocked it. The runtime went like 4.01. So there's like 22, 23 minutes of credits for this movie, which like at first glance is like whatever. Hard pass. Yeah, hard pass. But on the second thought, first off, Howard Shore's music plays the whole time and it's phenomenal. Uh, Second off, it's just cool to think about the fact that 20 minutes worth of names, hundreds and hundreds and probably over a thousand names worked on this trilogy, this project. It is one of the most special movie trilogies of Mm -hmm. all time. Mm -hmm. And as epic and crazy long as the series is, it just felt like it deserved an epically long credit sequence. Yeah. I thought that was pretty neat. So your your immediate impressions were... They had great closing credits. Yeah, man. All right, cool. No, Got it. Honestly, one of my <laughs> one of my immediate takeaways was, you know, I genuinely like the extended editions more, but I think I'm going to stick with theatrical from here on out. <laughs> I just don't have this much time in my life. I was going to say, you're a dad now. Like, there, there's no way you yeah, can carve man. out four plus hours at a time. Dude, I think that this movie is an example of catharsis done right. Hmm. Like, I know a lot of people talk about how great it is when a movie ends with a cliffhanger and it forces you to think about the world and and the darkness in your soul and, you know, all, all those like fine and dandy things to say. But this movie goes the exact opposite route. It gives you every single moment of like, oh, yeah, the Shire. Oh, man, the, the Fellowship is reunited. Oh, Gandalf is so cool. Oh, like Sam and Rosie. Like... You get all of the moments one after another, and I just I just love it, man. I think this is one of the few movies where the cheesy catharsis, you know, moments, they could just keep on coming and I'd be 100% happy. Yeah, I will say, man, like, I'm going to have nitpicks about this movie. The multiple endings are not one of my nitpicks. I have never yeah. found that this movie had too many endings, and especially after investing nine plus hours in these characters it's good to see that they each get the send off that they deserve. And so like, you're not going to get any, you know, 18 year old hot takes from me about this movie has too many endings. I actually think the ending is pretty much perfect. Yeah. I am right there with you when, when Frodo and Sam are laying there and well, first off when Frodo can't see the Shire anymore Mm -hmm. and that, that transition from Sam and the hopeful uplift in music as he talks about the Shire trying to like cast vision and hope for Frodo. And then Frodo just shuts him down like a (laughs) peanut butter stout to a child's dreams. (laughs) Like it's, it's so dark. Uh, And then, but that sets you up. They're laying there. The, the lava is flowing around them. And Frodo goes, I can see it, Sam. I can see the springtime in the Shire. And you're like, oh, my God, Frodo can see the Shire again. (laughs) I can see the Shire. I ran the Ohan River. Back in. Gandalf's fireworks. The lights. Party tree. Rosie caught dancing. She had ribbons in her hair. If ever I was to marry someone, 
so it's so damn good. I, I want to take bets on each other real quick. Over under, how many times do you think I cried during this movie? How many times do I think you cried during this movie? Ooh, that's a that's a good question. I want you to go uh, first. I'm gonna put the over under for you at two and a half. Yeah, yeah. I think I was at three. I think it was. Uh, I think it was. Um, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. That one got me. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, my friends, you bow to no one gets me every single time, dude. And then, dude. and then Frodo's goodbye. And actually, the moment that gets me at Frodo's goodbye, it isn't when he says goodbye to Sam. It's when he hugs. Uh, Mary, and they leave the camera on Dominic Monaghan's face as he mm. hugs Frodo goodbye, and it's like such a genuine emotion. Actually, you know what? I might have had a fourth one too. And <laughs> just now that I'm thinking about it, it's uh when Mary and Pippin are split up, and they don't know if they're ever going to see each other again because Billy Boyd and Dominic Monaghan, they're fantastic together. Their chemistry with each other is insane, and, and like. Uh, when they get divided up and you watch, uh, I think it's Pippin right away and Mary's talking about how he doesn't know if he's ever going to see him again. I choked up a little bit there, too. Yeah, man, I you are 100 percent correct. Billy and Dominic. I love what they do with these movies. And I, and I think that, like, when you look at the movies as a whole, when you have so many stinking characters to care about they almost have to have their own little sub movies that are going on. Mm -hmm. And so you get that with, uh, with Aragorn and Eowyn, you get that with Eowyn and Mary and with Mary and Pippin and Gandalf and Pippin. And you get all these little moments where the way these characters interact with one another reveals who they are as people, as hobbits, as elves, as dwarves. And I, I just think that Billy and Dominic just knock it out of the park as like best friends who grow as human beings mm -hmm. together through a terrible conflict. All right. I'm going to put your over under at 1.5 because you are more heartless than me, but you're not totally heartless. So I, I know this movie got you twice. Probably Bob, I didn't cry a single time in this, this oh, view. I hate you so much, dude. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I, uh, I, I genuinely don't often cry at movies. The, you know the last movie that got me to cry? This might make you a little bit happier. What's that? Was uh, Children of Man. Really? Yeah. Wow. When she was having her baby. Yeah, yeah. I lost it because I was like, I've been there too. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so beautiful. It is so beautiful. Yeah, and like man. you get sucked into the world. And if if everyone wasn't able to have babies, like then my little Sadie wouldn't have been born. And that like that caused me to cry. Yeah, I get it. So. Man. So I think the bar has been raised a little bit from like you bow to no one to my baby possibly couldn't have been born. I was going to say a catastrophic event and a miraculous birth. That's like the only thing that will get you. Yeah, man. Birth right. of Christ type stuff. Well, let's get into Brad Explains. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the movie that he has just seen often for the first time. This is very obviously not Brad's first time seeing The Return of the King. But Brad, the real challenge for you is that you only have 60 seconds to try to break down everything that happens in this movie for our listeners. So can you do it, man? Can you give it to us in a minute or less? Easily, Bob. Aragorn kicks ass. Gandalf takes names. Frodo tosses <laughs> the ring in the fire. Boom. The end. <laughs> that was six Honestly, seconds. Honestly, Bob. 
That, that's what I'm saying, man. Yeah, this, let's just stop there. This movie, if you haven't seen it by now, go watch it. Um, it's one of the greatest movies of all time, along with the other two movies in the trilogy. Mm. So if you haven't seen any of them, go watch the whole daggone thing. Uh, I'll, I'll take a full 60 seconds just to encourage you to go watch these movies. Um, if you have seen them, then you know what I'm talking about. And I think my summary is succinct enough for you. I like it, man. Let's move on. We have more things to talk about. (laughs) I'm going to offer my first hot take here, Brad. I think this might be the worst of the three. Oh, yeah. And I'm really surprised to say that because I always thought Fellowship was the worst of the three. And if you go back and listen to our Fellowship episode, like I had a lot of, I mean, what I think are very legitimate complaints about some of the camera moves and, and things that they hadn't quite polished up yet. You can really tell that even though all three of these movies were shot at the same time, that by the time the third one came around, the studio was pumping more money into the post-production. Like this one looks better than all three of them. I think the CGI holds up better uh, from this one than any of the other two. And and so like you had this really pristine looking film but I came away from it saying like, yeah, this is probably like a close to perfect movie, but it felt the least Lord of the Ringsy to me. And I think it might be the worst one. Yeah. I mean, I remember when we when we reviewed uh, The Fellowship of the Ring that you commented that you, you just get a little bit bogged down in the story a little bit much. Mm-hmm. I think that happens in this one, because honestly, at this point. I feel like a lot of trilogies that do that do well, they establish the world in the first uh, story. The second one, they deepen the tension and put the heroes in some sort of unwinnable fight. And then in the third one, you have a triumph, uh, a a triumph. (laughs) (laughs) You have a triumph of good over evil. Right. And in this one, you have that and it's beautiful and amazing. But you also still have massive lore dumps just throughout the entire movie. You're like, yeah, there's these ghosts under the the mountain and they they broke their vow a long time ago. And and here we are. You got to go get them, Aragorn. Mm-hmm. And like they, they just spend so much time with lore. And, and don't get me wrong, Bob. I could talk to you for three hours straight without you mentioning a single syllable about Lord of the Rings and and just not lose steam. So I, I love the lore of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> like, if you want to start talking about Tom Bombadil, we, we mm. can go at it. Silmarillion but, podcast next week. Yeah, next week we're starting. <laughs> so it's going to be Silmarillion and warm ale. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so but, let, me, let me jump in but, and say this, though. Yeah. Okay, I think the thing that really stood out to me about this one, and I'm trying to figure out how to word it so that it don't get misconstrued, but the note that I kept taking is that this is the least fun of the three movies. And I don't mean by that that, like, it has the least, you know, the fewest number of lighthearted moments. It has the fewest gags, because it definitely does. It's, It's much more serious than the other ones are. But even, like, the filmmaking, the emphasis is elsewhere with this movie. Compare it to The Two Towers. I think that one has very similar themes. I think they're starting to feel the heaviness of the ring. Uh, the the friendships are starting to get fractured a little bit. The paranoia is starting to creep in. The dread, the, the insurmountable odds are starting to stack against them. So I think the comparison between the two movies is, is there. But the style of filmmaking of Two Towers is much more of a... 
almost like a swashbuckly kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like it's really adventurous and you feel the propulsion of our heroes doing what they need to do. And it's a fun ride, even though there are some heavier moments in it. And this one, for better or worse, I think Peter Jackson really shies away from giving you moments of like of just fun. So, like, take the the big battle in front of the city of Minas Tirith. It's called the Battle of Pelennor Fields. In scale, it is even larger than the battle we had in the second one. And yet, I didn't really feel a sense of, like, it wasn't very compelling to me. And the way that battle ends is, like, with all these ghost soldiers coming and just wiping everything out in, like, 20 seconds. So, I think there are things about this movie that, while you really do get a sense of the human element of the movie, and I think that's really wise on Peter Jackson's part, like he leans into look at the toll this is taking on people. He does it at the expense of giving you like really, really classic swashbuckling kind of elements scattered throughout the movie. Yeah, I mean, the you know, the Battle of Helm's Deep is supposed to have like 10,000 Uruk High ready to fight. The Battle of Pelennor Fields is supposed to be 100,000 plus orcs. Like, it's supposed to be the greatest force that has ever been seen. And I do think that this is one of the few departures from the books that I dislike uh, that Peter Jackson did. Because, and this, I don't know, stick with me for a second here, but like, in the books, Aragorn does go underneath the mountain and get the the army of the dead. But what he does with them is he goes to the ships that these pirates have, mm-hmm. and essentially he frees the slaves that are that are like rowing these ships that they've taken from Gondor and Rohan and all these other places. And it's that army of slaves and that army of um, people that reinforce Gondor at the end of the battle and help turn the tide. And there's something about that story hmm. that that is much more compelling to me of one of Aragorn as a as a uh, freeing emancipator that swoops in to save the day more so than like an invincible unstoppable army of the dead. Yeah. That just like wipes the field. That I think that if they had stuck with the book in that area, yes, it would have been harder because you have to like at least show him freeing somebody (laughs) to show this idea of having (laughs) an army. Um, But there's something about that that just hits it. It hits home a little bit more deeply than does what they showed. And you're right, Bob, you you lose some of that personal connection to the people fighting in the battle. Mm. And, and that's that's an unfortunate thing, because when you consider it, Lord of the Rings is this epically large story that is incredibly intimate in its performance. Yeah. And, and so when you lose those intimate moments, it, it causes the film to suffer. Well, and I also think that this is a victim of the fact that there are just so many characters to follow now. Like every time they go to a new city, you meet like the entire government of that city. And so you have all these people getting folded into the mix here. And it it really, you know, it kind of becomes hard to keep track of all of them and what their motivations are and, you know, who they're in love with and things like that. And so I do think that the sheer amount of things they have to intercut throughout this movie really does kind of take away from the movie a little bit. Uh, to the point where really crucial members of that original fellowship, the nine, uh, are barely in the movie. Like Gimli and Legolas are hardly in this movie. And I know you watch the extended version, but I'm telling you, man, like there are large swaths of this movie 
where Frodo and Sam disappear for 30 minutes at a time. And then, you know, you watch Aragorn making preparations for battle or talking with Eowyn or longing for Arwen and his two buddies aren't there either. And so you get to the end of the movie and it kind of feels like some of these members of the fellowship that you've really been sticking it out with here got shafted because they're making so much room for people like Denethor, the steward of Gondor. And I think it really takes away from, you know, giving the audience some more time with these people that they really, really like. All right, let's uh, let's talk about Denethor, Denethor for a second, Bob. Are you ready? <laughs> let's do it, man. So I have a few rules for Film and Whiskey Nation. Uh, rule number one, anytime Bob refers to an actor chewing scenery, overacting, anything like that, you have to think about Denethor in this performance because this this is the textbook definition of overacting. Am I right? Oh, my gosh, man. Like, that was the first note I took was, wow, this facial twitching is really over the top. Yeah. And like it, I don't want to say it doesn't work for the movie because I I think that it it creates a very convincing picture of a madman. Um, So it's not as if overacting doesn't work. I just don't know if it adds a massive amount to the movie. It, It doesn't add as much as the actor thought it would at the very least. So I do think it takes away, though, I, like or or how did you phrase it? You, it's not that it doesn't work. I do think it doesn't work. I think he's terrible. And it's one of those things that you don't really notice unless you're watching it for this podcast where we're like trying to find things to be critical about. So, like, I think you you could go through the movie and not pay attention to how over the top this man is. Because at the end of the day, we're watching people pretend to fight CGI trolls and stuff. You know what I mean? Like they're all overacting because that's the nature of this movie. But I think we've gotten used to a certain level of acting from all of the people involved, you know, even Theoden and Eowyn and all those people from Rohan, like they, they know what's up. They understand the assignment. And my boy Denethor just rolls in here and is like, he looks like, he's getting exercised of a demon half the time. Like his, his face is just shaking. And um, when he is in his right mind, he's so like, it, it seems like he just watched the lion King a couple times and was like, yeah, scar Jeremy irons. I got it. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to lean into that. It's so over the top. And honestly, even the way that they try to make his character have some sort of significance on the plot, it just felt very shoehorned in. And I'm sure, again, Brad, in the books, like he probably plays some sort of major role. I have no idea. But the whole way that they set up his son getting wounded in battle and then coming back, you know, they bring his his apparently lifeless body back into the city. And Denethor is convinced that he has killed his son. And so he kind of goes mad and he wants to be burned on a pyre with his dead son and it is it's very obvious that his son is not dead. Like he's just kind of rolling around on the floor like, hey, what's going on? And breathing and and Pippin's going, hey, look, he's alive. He's alive. I think the geography of that whole sequence doesn't it just didn't work for me. Like Denethor is is apparently so out of his mind that he won't listen to anyone telling him like, hey, look, your son's eyes are open and he's eating a sandwich like right there, you know? And he's like, no, and he throws Pippin out and and gets up on the pyre and dumps oil on himself. And none of that sequence worked for me. And and it ends with Gandalf riding in on his horse, his horse just booting the guy in the face so hard 
that he lands up on the pyre and burns alive. And if you watch that sequence, Brad, like you can see that the stunt actor gets pretend hit in the face by this horse. And instead of falling up onto the pyre, you see him jump off of his feet because (laughs) because this like bonfire is so high off the ground, he can't just fall back onto it. So he has to jump up and into the fire. It like nothing about Denethor worked for me. And it really took away from the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the big problem is like, how do you convey madness very well? Uh, for me, the, they're supposed to be conveying this idea that Denethor has been looking into a secret Palantir, which is the the orb that mm-hmm. Pippin has that drives him kind of crazy a little bit, uh, and that it has driven him mad because he's watched uh, Sauron build up his forces and he knows there's no way to beat 100,000 orcs. And so he's gone mad. And he I think the the thing that they're trying to portray is that he knows his son is alive. He wants to be a martyr. He wants to be seen as, you know, as this tragic figure uh, with his son more than he actually wants to live at this Mm -hmm, point mm -hmm. or he wants his son to live. So that that for me kind of worked. But I mean, you're 100 percent correct, man. The dude was. The dude was ridiculous. Yeah. And I think the the other problem is that when you compare him to the other king figure of the movie, uh, Theoden, played by Bernard Hill, it's it's comparing apples and oranges. Bernard Hill knocks it out of the freaking park in this movie. Oh, he's so good. And and part of it is his character is so good. He's he's constantly conflicted. He's constantly confronted uh, with his own fallibility. And I think that there are a lot of times where in the second and third movie, if you're strictly comparing him to Aragorn and all the heroic things Aragorn does, then you can see Theoden is kind of a, a, a coward. But what I love about Theoden's character is he is representative of how easily swayable, how easily, uh, you know, mistake prone and fallible humans are like that is part. That's one of the major themes of the Lord of the Rings is Uh, The age of men is dawning again, but like they don't have a king to lead them. And Theoden is kind of grappling with the fact of like, I am a very flawed person and I have made some really grave mistakes. And I recognize that this person, Aragorn, who is going to take a throne that isn't mine, but that's, you know, rising up at the same time that I'm king is all of the things that I'm supposed to be as king uh, and am falling short of. And so I really love the way that they allow Bernard Hill to play that character because he has all the regrets, but he also by the by the time he dies, he's really come to terms with the fact of like, I did the best I could. I made mistakes uh, and I feel content knowing that there's someone coming after me who's going to do a much better job than I did. It's a really beautiful character arc. Yeah, I mean, there's just a certain nobleness to the character of Theoden And like you said, Bob, he just has so many flaws and yet he continues to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's what's so compelling about a character like Theoden and the performance that Bernard Hill gave it is that we all know the struggle of being a human being. We all know the struggle of doing the right thing in the face of all the temptations that the world has to offer us. But it is admirable and noble to continually do the right thing in the face of your flaws. And that like that it's places like that where Lord of the Rings just shines. Well, and I will say that this one has the best performances of the whole trilogy. But the reason it has the best performances is that it also has the best script. 
Like the script really sets these actors up for success by having by far the best dialogue and also by building in these moments that allow actors to act. I feel like in the first two movies, there's a there's a lot of exposition dumps and a lot of the acting performances are just trying to make you buy into the premise of these movies. Whereas this one, it's like, hey, we're going to lean really heavily into displaying the toll this is taking on you and everyone's tired and everyone's paranoid. Everyone's being tempted by the ring and you're all going to be crying all the time. And all the actors in this movie, except for Denethor, knock it out of the freaking park. Like it it really I, I think one of the things that bothers me most about this movie and the way it was received by the public is that this movie gets nominated for 11 Oscars. It wins all of them. It is a clean sweep. And it had no acting nominations. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I understand that the ensemble is so big that they probably weren't going to get a nomination just because it's hard to find like a token person to nominate from this group. But I mean, come on, like Ian McKellen, Elijah Wood, some like just Vigo, somebody throw somebody in there because they were all worthy of being recognized for their performances. Yeah, I mean, I think you can easily throw Ian or Elijah in for best actor, even Vigo to a point. And then I like I think you could throw any of those three in for supporting actor. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. like all of them play such beautiful lead and yet supporting roles in the movie. It easily could have gotten two or three more nominations for acting roles. Well, I want to keep talking about these performances, Brad, but I think it's time we press pause. We have a momentous occasion today. We're going to be drinking Pappy Van a, Winkle. A peanut butter stout. <laughs> a peanut butter stout. <laughs> We're switching it up on you folks. What do you say we try this, Pappy? Let's get to it, Bob. everybody it is the moment we have been building to on this podcast for four freaking seasons we are finally doing it brad i don't know how, how in the hell we were able to get our, our hands on this but we are trying pappy van winkle 15 year today robert this is the moment that like we're done after this we've arrived for four seasons it just worked out perfectly that it landed on our final movie of the season. We're done after this. The <laughs> Film and Whiskey podcast is over. So Film and Whiskey Nation, as you can tell, I have a bit of a cold and I'm going to go ahead and spoil something for you on the production side of things. We actually tried the whiskey before we sat down today. Uh, obviously, we uh, we are still very much poor and not able to afford our own bottle of Pappy Van Winkle. However... We tried Pappy 15 when we went to record on location with our friends at Crafted Cocktail Company. They had a bottle of Pappy 15. It was the last pour we had that day. We wanted to do something big to celebrate. And our friend Scott Sauer absolutely hooked us up with the Pappy. Uh, we could not have tried this if it wasn't for Crafted Cocktail. So first of all, our friend Scott, I want to say thank you for carrying such a great selection of whiskeys at your bar. 
Yeah, Crafted Cocktail is literally the coolest place in Northeast Ohio. So if you are ever <laughs> traveling through the area, if you live um, anywhere within an hour of Wadsworth, Ohio, you need to get your butt on down to Crafted Cocktail and check it out because Scott is just knocking it out of the park over there. So yes, Scott, you are a true gentleman and a scholar. So we thank you. So before we dive into this, Brad, I do think we should give a little bit of background on Pappy Van Winkle because this stuff has developed such a reputation over the last. Bob, I, go ahead. Go I ahead. like that you say. I like that you say we are going to give background information as if I'm going to give any background inf- information. <laughs> as if you've done have. any research at all. <laughs> yeah, like it's very obvious at this point in the podcast that you have done the background research. So, Bob, why don't you tell us? About Pappy Van Winkle Man. 15. Damn right I will, Brad. All right. So, <laughs> so not to get too far in the weeds here, I want to keep this kind of surface level. If you want to really nerd out about Pappy, you can do a deep dive. What we're looking at here is a product that is produced by Buffalo Trace. And it is produced with the same general mash bill that they use to produce Weller. We've talked about that in the past, how if you blend certain kinds of the Weller line of products, it kind of approximates the flavor, or so people say, of Pappy Van Winkle. So what separates Weller from a Pappy Van Winkle is the selection process. It's the history of the brand. It's uh, the age statement that you get on the brand as well. We're drinking the youngest Pappy Van Winkle today, which is 15 year. Now they have one that's called Old Rip Van Winkle, uh, and they also have Van Winkle Family Reserve Rye. But bearing the name Pappy Van Winkle, this is the youngest one at 15 years. It goes all the way up in age to a 23 year old bourbon. Brad, I'm I'm really interested if we ever get the chance to try the Pappy 23, because it's obviously the most expensive of all of them. Having just had Elijah Craig 18 a couple weeks ago on the podcast, you know, after a certain point, bourbon just isn't that good if you've left it in the barrel for that long. And I think even when we were getting to the 18 year mark without Elijah Craig, it was really pushing the boundaries of like, is this over oaked at this point? Uh, so we've heard people say that Pappy 15 is the one to drink if you can try Pappy Van Winkle. And uh, luckily for you, dear listener, we have tried Pappy Van Winkle 15. Yeah. Luckily for you, <laughs> we've drank the whiskey you want to try. That's right. And we're going to tell you all about it. So, Brad, uh, let's just let's just be honest here. I want to give my, my honest opinion about Pappy. I have been excited to try it for the longest time. I have been dreading trying it for the longest time because everything we've ever said about Buffalo Trace, uh, it, it finds <laughs> it, it finds its peak here in Pappy Van Winkle. The overpricing, the allocation, the, the crazy chasing and hunting that goes on for this product is just outrageous. And I feel like in some sense, there's no way this could ever really live up to the hype that surrounds it. Yeah, I mean, this would be like watching Citizen Kane if it cost you like $600 for a screening (laughs) of Citizen Kane. You know what I mean? Like this is like the creme de la creme of bourbon in the bourbon hunting world. And it costs a butt ton of money to get, you know, even a price of admission. It's honestly like watching Citizen Kane. Like there's so much hype around it. There's so much. Is this the greatest movie of all time that like if it costs you five hundred dollars to watch Citizen Kane every time you watched it, you would really be asking yourself the question like, man, like. Is this movie really worth spending all this money on? Mm -hmm. And in the same way, I think Pappy falls along that vein. 
Now, the reason Pappy built up such a reputation is because for a long time, the product was distilled at the old Stitzel Weller Distillery, which was then acquired by Buffalo Trace, got folded into Buffalo Trace. And then, of course, Buffalo Trace is now owned by Sazerac. Uh, Over the years, everything that was distilled at that old distillery has kind of been used up, right? Like uh, after their 23rd year of being shut down, Pappy 23 was no longer made 100% with Stitzel Weller product. And so what I've heard is that newer stuff isn't quite as good. The stuff that's like 100% Sazerac made, not quite as good as the older stuff. Here's the thing, guys, we did the best we could. Uh, We're not not like digging through the annals of Pappy (laughs) history. So you know what? But, But to that point, though, Brad, it might not be worth it anymore. And it maybe it developed its reputation based on how good the old stuff was and the newer stuff may not be worth it at all. So I think it's time for us to go ahead and dive in. Uh, We took copious notes as we were drinking this because we did not want to let you guys down. Brad, when it comes to the nose of Pappy 15, what were your impressions? I honestly, I think what was remarkable to me was how subtle and soft the nose was. I mean, there's some beautiful wheat notes. There's a ton of like nice, soft, sweet vanilla. Um, there, there was a little bit of like a buttery feel to it for me, almost like a butterscotch. It's an amazing nose. It's, it's. I, I, don't, I wouldn't even say decadent. There's just a lot of really nice things going on here. I'd probably give it like a nine out of ten. You know, it's really funny that you started off with the kind of soft, subtle nose because the first note I took on the nose was ethanol. Like, I actually thought the alcohol really jumped out of the glass on this in a way I wasn't expecting. So this actually clocks in at 107 proof, which is the same as Weller Antique. Uh, But for me, the ethanol was much more prominent on the nose than it is on Weller Antique. I found this to be like a little bit grainier. It had like a kind of musty smell to it, which I think, you know, is indicative of the fact that it's been in the barrel for 15 years. Like it definitely had that sort of old sawdusty note on it for me. I got a lot of orange on this as well. Orange peel was pretty prominent all the way throughout, which is something, Brad, that we also picked up on Weller Foolproof just a couple weeks ago. So I think there's definitely some similarities here uh, to what you got in those Weller lineups. The disappointing thing for me is that I don't know that I picked up on anything that was markedly different than Weller or or like markedly more complex. So I, I go into this a little bit apprehensive because, again, like this is a $58 million whiskey at this point. And like it doesn't seem wildly better or different than Weller. So I'm actually only going to give it an eight and a half on the nose. And then as we move into the taste I, for this it really jumps from being kind of soft and subtle into a much more pronounced, bold flavor profile. Um, I feel like I'm getting a lot of this just decadent butter. Um, it has some like perfume-like notes that almost feel like a floral mixed with bits of grape. Um, and then once again, that butter really just kind of comes through. It feels like a butterscotch to me. Um, it's, it's really great. There's a lot going on, but I, I think I'm going to stick it like an eight and a half out of 10 on the taste. Yeah. I'm actually also going to be at an eight and a half on the taste. Uh, but I'm going to echo and really underscore your note of like butteriness because as I tasted this and I gave it two or three sips before I really took notes, um, I wrote down the word butter four times in my tasting notes here. That was the first thing that jumped off to me was it's buttery. And at first, it's really buttery in the mouthfeel. It's a very oily, uh, very like creamy, decadent, heavy whiskey. 
And then as you swallow it, like not to go into finish, but like on the back end of the flavor, that sort of salted butter note actually came out a lot for me. Like it actually tasted like butter as well. Brad, I think if there's one thing that I can say about this whiskey that is just vastly different from every other whiskey we've ever had on the show, I can see why people go crazy over this because this is the most rich, decadent whiskey that I think I've ever had. It's almost like when you get like a piece of cake and you know, like when something is so sugary that it almost like it has that weird effect on your tongue that it almost like numbs your palate. Like it it has this weird, at least for me, there's like a sensation of like, this is so sweet that it is like shocking my palate right now. And you Mm. can only eat so much of it, right? This is like that. This is a whiskey that I took one sip of. And I will say like, it's not super complex, but it's so buttery and so rich and so heavy and so oily that I was like, I'm good for a couple minutes. And I put it down. Yeah. And I came back to it a few minutes later. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it, you have to take breaks between sips yeah. on this one. Dude, for me, it's almost like, you know how you've been to weddings and they're like, oh, we ended up getting like a giant eagle cake or a Kroger cake for everyone. And it's like cheap and good. And I like I agree with them. I'm like, yeah, that's like solid cake. You know, it's wedding cake. It's fine. But then you go to like a like an actual bakery and you have like a high end casada cake or, you know, whatever it is. Like, have you ever had that experience? Where oh, you're absolutely. Like, oh, my gosh. This cake is on the next level. To me, that's kind of the experience I'm getting here where. Yes, I've had decadent buttery type whiskeys before, but this really is like you just said, it it's just a different type. It's just a different level of explosion of buttery goodness. I yeah. I don't know how else to explain it. Again, I, I I think I will make the distinction though. It's not as complex as some whiskeys that we've had. It's just no. it's just much heavier. It's like when you, you know, if you go to a brewery, you can get your like light weeded beer or you can get like the imperial stout that, that is that is the most filling thing you could possibly like an oatmeal stout or something. It, the note that I took on this was this is the buttercream frosting of whiskey. I, I just think in every sense of that term, it's really, really dense and it's good. You know what I mean? I think it's a huge step up in terms of like what it does on the palate from Weller Antique even if it's not any more complex flavor wise. So again, it's only an eight and a half for me. Um, but the experience of drinking it was, was definitely something I haven't had before. Yeah. Well, and you know, we've gotten through the nose and the taste for me, the finish, it just keeps the, the butterscotch train going. Um, here you definitely get a lot more of the Oak that you would expect from a 15 year aged bourbon. Um, but the oakiness I don't know. I feel like a lot of times my struggle with longer aged bourbons is that the oakiness overpowers every other flavor at the finish. That is not true here. It sticks on that butterscotch and gives you a nice solid finish that lingers for a while. And like you said, Bob, I think the beautiful thing about this whiskey is you spend so much money on it that it forces you to slow down and enjoy it. And so for me, it's a nine out of 10 on the finish. It's just phenomenal. Okay, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to amend my taste score and I'm going to bump it up to a nine just because of the drinking experience being so different uh, than what we're used to. However, I'm actually only going to give the finish a seven out of ten. 
And here's why. I think you're right in that like that heaviness really kind of hangs around. Uh, but there's not like a ton of uh, complexity that comes on the finish. It's it's the same general notes that you're used to. If you've had a Weller Antique, uh, it has that weeded bourbon character on the finish. And what's left behind on your palate, it's a long finish. And I think that's to be commended. Where I really found it lacking, though, was that there was like no chest burn on this thing. I actually wrote down, this gives me a belly burn, not a chest burn. I thought that like by the time it reached my stomach, I was like, oh. Like this is, again, very heavy, and I feel like the alcohol is all sitting in my stomach. Um, but it didn't really make itself known kind of on the way down. And that was a bummer for me because it packed a punch uh, until you swallowed, and then it, it really wasn't there anymore. And so if there is one thing I'm really going to ding this whiskey on, it's it's the finish. So I'm just going to give it a 7 out of 10 there. Well, and then we get into the balance. Uh like you said, Bob, this is not the most complex whiskey we've had. And honestly, I'd say that by a long shot. Um, you know, I think back to some of the other BTAC we've tried, and there's there are much more complex whiskeys out there in this type of market. Um, but really, I, I think that this is a really solid balance of butter and oak, um, little bits of spiciness here and there, some nice vanilla. I think it's a well-balanced whiskey. I'll give it an eight and a half. Brad, before I give my my balance score here, I want to go back to last season. We finished out the year with Thomas H. Handy Sazerac Rye, a Buffalo Trace antique collection product. And it is to this day, I think, the highest rated whiskey we've ever done on the show. Yeah, dude. It was a sample that was sent to us by our friends Bourbon and Stuff. And at the time, they told me it was a 2018 version of the bottle. But the picture they sent me, the specs on it were from the 2019 version. And again, I don't know how much that matters. But like if I said 2018 and we really drank 2019, I apologize. All that to say, I was out at Crafted Cocktail like three days ago with a friend of show, Mike Giles. And we splurged and split a pour of Thomas H. Handy. I was like, dude, it's the highest one we've ever had on the show. I'd, I'd love to treat you to this. Like, let's or, you know, at least let's split it down the middle. And we did. And I got to tell you, man, like not only was it not the best whiskey I've ever had, it was legitimately not good and it was not worth $40. Now, that could be really? like something happened to this specific bottle. It wasn't like, you know, the, the whiskey equivalent of a skunked beer, but like the it wasn't complex at all. And the nose had like a very faint kind of cat piss smell to it. And, you know, Mike drank it and he, he really was polite about it. And then I was like, wow, that wasn't good at all. And he was like, yeah, I didn't like that. <laughs> we spent $40 on a pour. And, it you know, again, this has nothing to do with Crafted Cocktail. Uh, but I asked Scott, like, what's going on here? And he basically said for him, these higher end Buffalo Trace products can really, really vary from bottle to bottle. And Brad, that really made me reconsider like the way that we recommended that BTAC product, because that sample we had may be the best whiskey I've ever had in my life. Uh, but this other bottle of the same thing from the same year, not good at all. And so I, I, I bring that to the table here with Pappy, because, again, it's the same distillery or, you know, at least the same manufacturer. And I thought the balance here was really good. It was just buttery and decadent as hell. But I wonder, like, did we get the higher end version of this product or were we sampling the lower end version of this product? And I, I hope for our sake that the bottle we had is like the worst pappy you could get and it can only go up from there because it was still really good. 
But I'm already kind of dreading, like, how are we going to recommend this bottle? So I look at the balance. I'm going to give it an eight and a half again on balance. Really good. Um, But it's just it isn't approaching that upper echelon of super complex whiskeys that we've had. And looking forward to our value and our recommendations here, Brad, I think this is where it gets really dicey. Yeah, I mean, Bob, you have said all of the right words that like trigger a response in me towards Buffalo Trace. (laughs) I I just don't get it, Bob. (laughs) That like. I feel like I've spent this season of the Film and Whiskey podcast just ranting and raging about Buffalo Trace. And like, if there's anybody to blame, it's you, Bob. Uh, You put all these whiskeys in front of me. Um, So I'm blaming you 100%. But in addition to that, I just look at it and I I don't know. I'm going to turn over a new leaf, Bob. In season five... I'm going to be a more positive, I want to bring a good energy into the world, but for now, I'm just going to be exasperated at the end of the season and say, I don't get it. I don't understand the hype around Buffalo Trace. Like I've said before, I've had some of their BTEC stuff. It's good. Like they make good whiskey. Um, But especially when you consider what you just said, Bob, of like this high-end BTEC can be really great or really bad. Um, At that point, I feel like Buffalo Trace is a company that is preying on the people who don't know a ton about whiskey. Heck, they're preying on people who do know a ton about whiskey. I just feel like I feel like it is an inappropriate and frankly immoral business model that they are just benefiting off nothing. And I'm I'm tired of it, Bob. I'm really frustrated. Here's what I think, Brad. I think for the first time ever, we should just not give a value score because like you're not you're not going to get this product at retail. Like there is a there's a bottle lottery in Ohio every year, but the allocation is so tiny. Like if you get this at retail, like go play the Powerball afterwards, because I have a feeling you have like equal odds of that. Like if If you want a bottle of Pappy, nothing we say is going to deter you from getting a bottle of Pappy. If you want to spend $2,000 securing this bottle, God bless you. Like, go for it, man. I'm not going to give it a value score, Brad, because like the alternative is just to give it a zero. And I think value is in the eye of the beholder. If this is something you want, you're going to get it. Nothing I say is going to convince you otherwise. So my final score is going to be out of 40. I don't know. Are you okay with doing it that way? Heck yeah, dude. All right. I mean, my score would go from being what it is out of 40 to what it is out of 50. So (laughs) I'm coming out to a 33 out of 40. Brad, where are you coming out to? Uh, I am at a 35 out of 40. All right. So we're coming out to a 34 out of 40, which is essentially an 85 out of 100. And again, that's just scoring it on the, the quality of the whiskey in the bottle. This is fantastic. And it was a cool experience, and I'm so grateful we got to try it. But, like, of course I'm not going to recommend this. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to suggest that you go out looking for a bottle of this or go to a bar and try to find a pour of it. Is it cool to do one time? Absolutely. And if you feel like dropping 50, 60, 70, 80 bucks on a pour of this, go for it. Uh, I'm not going to recommend it. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to do it either. And honestly, like, in the future, if we're at a place and somebody offers it to us, and we want to do a review on it. Like, yes, we will review it. Uh, and I know I say, I, I know I say that like, it sounds like a chore, 
Um, but honestly, there's a part of me that I just sit here and I, I feel like an old man, Bob. I'm a geezer. I'm, I'm ancient. Just give me some ancient, ancient age, Bob. There it is. All right. So those are our <laughs> thoughts on Pappy 15. Again, we don't mean to be downers here. I, I, I really liked this product. I think that you can have an enjoyable time drinking this product. I think that the hype is at least somewhat earned because it is such a decadent, rich bourbon. I, I see why people love it so much. Uh, so if you have different thoughts than we do, we'd love to hear what you think of Pappy 15. You can find us on our social medias. Again, reach out to us at Film Whiskey on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. But really, the the true all-star here is Scott Sauer at Crafted Cocktail. Is it not, Bob? Oh, 100%. Yeah, so get out there, check him out. But for now, uh, we don't recommend Pappy unless you're just going to get it. In which case, go get it. Enjoy yeah. it. But for now... We want to get back into Return of the King. What? Not one of the greatest trilogy ending of all time. So <laughs> let's let's get back to it, Bob. Let's do it, Brad. Right, that was Pappy Van Winkle, 15 year. Once again, thank you to our friend Scott Sauer at Crafted Cocktail for giving us the opportunity to try Pappy. Brad, I mean, I don't know that I ever really anticipated that four seasons into this podcast, you know, when we started, that we would be trying whiskeys like this. This is it's been a fun ride, man. And we're clearly not done yet, but I think once in a while it's good to just take stock of where you're at. It's really cool that we got to drink Pappy together. Yeah, a hundred percent, dude. You know, I like I was reflecting tonight about the journey that we've been on and the the long path that it's taken us to get here. And Bob, I just <laughs> I'm so thankful to be doing this podcast with you. Speaking of long paths that it's taken, the Lord of the Rings. Am I right? <laughs> am I right? Dude, I, so the other day we were uh, we were discussing the question of replace every single character but one in a movie with Muppets <laughs> and return to the, uh, the just the Lord of the Rings came up in general and they were like the travel montages of the Muppets just like bebopping their way across the screen <laughs> would be the greatest thing in the world oh that's funny I would I would want it to be Ian McKellen as the human and everyone else as oh a yeah 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 I mean it's a it's a classic Michael Caine situation all over yep again. for sure <laughs> All right, man. So just a few more notes before we get into final scores. I love that they started this movie off. The prologue to this movie is a flashback to how Gollum became Gollum. You know what I mean? Or I guess how Smeagol became Gollum. But to start the movie with a character that you think is kind of a minor character or at least a supporting character, it's a really bold move. And I think it really signals what Peter Jackson's trying to do here because He's showing us what happened to Smeagol, not just as a as a character study, even though it is like we we learned from a very early point, like you should not trust this person and he's going to betray our two heroes here. But also, this is exactly what's happening inside of Frodo right now. 
And it's a thing that like they never really drove home well enough in Two Towers, if I'm being honest. Like you kind of had some sense that the ring was weighing on him. But I think in this movie, it really becomes clear, not just because they're all backstabbing each other and crying all the time, but because you have this this prologue where you see a hobbit get so obsessed with the ring that he turns into this monstrous creature and the makeup, the body horror elements of him, like transforming into Gollum are excellent. It is like really unsettling to start this movie this way. But I think it's really necessary for understanding why you know how much the ring is weighing on Frodo. Yeah, dude, the like you said, the makeup transformation, I think Gollum is a million times more terrifying in like the final scene of him crawling into the mountain than he is once he turns into Gollum. Mm. Like that thing freaking haunted my dreams as a child after I saw this. Although, do you know what it kind of looks like? It it looks a little bit like if you shaved Jim Carrey's Grinch. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? he has those weird I've cheekbones that, yeah. he kind of looks like a deformed who it's really interesting yeah, yeah it is really interesting uh the other mm. thing that i think about that opening sequence is that i i'm afraid and i i could be wrong on this bob but i'm afraid that there's a whole generation of marvel cinematic universe fans out there that only know andy circus from his work in those films which is phenomenal because Andy mm-hmm. Circus is great mm-hmm. in everything that he does. But if you want to talk about roots, where like where my boy got his break, uh, it was these movies. And I think that him as as uh Smeagol, yeah. the Hobbit, before he becomes Gollum at all, I thought he just killed it in that role. And I think it's so cool that like they gave him that part. They let him act. As the character, as well as, you know, put on the 3D suit and climb around the set as Gollum. Like, also, I, I think we can disagree. Uh, Andy Serkis got much more attractive as he got older. <laughs> dude didn't <laughs> dude didn't look great when he was in his late 30s, early 40s for this movie. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing what having millions of dollars can do for you. Yeah, it's it's crazy, man. I mean, the same thing happened with Steve Carell after The Office. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, honestly my plan. Yeah. You Make know? millions <laughs> through through all of your sons who will join the NBA. Someday. That's, that's right. <laughs> so I, I mentioned this in the first half, but I do think the script for this movie is probably the best of all three, even though that's juggling too much. You know, it's not perfect. But in terms of the dialogue they give the characters and like I said, the breathing room for the characters to actually act and have reactions, uh, I, I think it really sets this movie up for success. And you notice it especially with Sam and Frodo. I think Elijah Wood and Sean Astin are just spectacular in this movie. And I noticed it really early on when uh, Sam is talking about how he has rationed out all the bread. And Frodo's like, what'd you ration it out for? And he says, for the journey home. And they cut back to Frodo. And the realization of like, I totally forgot that we have to go home after this too. And it's almost like you see in the moment the weight kind of get lifted off of him as he remembers what home is and and where he's ultimately going. It's a brilliant little touch. And there's there's many touches like that throughout the movie where they just allow a character to have a reaction like that. And I think that because the acting is so good in this movie, they don't need to write more dialogue to cover up for that. They just have these little silent reactions and it works beautifully. Yeah, I, I think that the most improved part of this film, uh, as opposed to the others, 
Well, it really is just opposed to the two towers is the Frodo and Sam storyline. I I think that you get so many more moments with them that the payoff of spending all this time with Frodo and Sam being best friends from the start of the first movie to this point is the fact that you are just so deeply affected by what happens to them. And you're right, Bob, the script for them is on point. The acting performances deliver such a beautiful friendship that you can't help but just be moved by some of the, in my opinion, cheesiest lines of all time. Like, I might not be able to carry it, but I'll carry you. Yeah, it's, like, it's a terrible it's, line. That is, that... It's a terrible line that works. <laughs> like even when even when Aragorn and Gandalf and all of them are making their kind of last stand at the gates, knowing they're going to die, probably not knowing if Frodo is there, but just saying, like, we have to do this if Frodo is alive so we can buy him time. And the eye of Sauron is calling out to Aragorn. And he just turns back in tears. And it's this moment where you're like, oh, my God, are they going to do this? Is Aragorn going to turn evil in the last moments of this movie? And he has that final resolution where he just whispers for Frodo. Again, stupid line. But man, is it effective or what? Like, yeah, that's the thing is, is I, I don't knock the script for having cheesy dialogue when it's earned. Like and the performances earn it and the fact that you've invested eight plus hours at that point of the movie, you know, into this world, it absolutely works. And like the last thing I'll say about these performances, Brad, I wish I could like make a, a gif of this. Maybe I'll try to when they're inside Mount Doom and Frodo, it's the very last time the ring calls out to Frodo. He's holding it like over the chasm and he's crying like he he's so anguished that he doesn't want to let go. And the ring starts calling out to him and they put the camera back on Elijah Wood's face. And this guy goes from deep pained anguish and crying to this like obsessed blank stare and yeah. watching that emotion come over or lack of emotion come over his face is truly unsettling. Like it's a brilliant touch that they they didn't cut away from it. They just show his face kind of morph back into this, you know, obsession um, man, I just think that the performances are so, so good. And there's these small little touches that I think go unnoticed in a movie that's this big. Um, but I think they deserve to be called out. Well, and not only do they deserve to be called out, but I think that that moment is like one of the most important of the series, right? That you you've been with Frodo through this nine hour journey, you know, this thousand plus page journey, if you're reading the books and you get to the end and you've watched him bear this burden. He's carried this weight for so long and right at the cusp of victory, the weight overpowers him. And that is like to me, it is one of the most crushing defeats in the history of literature, cinema, like, I don't care what you throw my way. Like, you know, spoiler alerts as, as you will, but like Dumbledore getting killed. Luke, I am your father. Like, I think that the moment Frodo gives into the temptation of the ring is one of the most heart wrenching moments for me in all of movies. I mean, honestly, even as much as people hate the prequels. When Anakin finally goes over to the dark side 
and he's killing younglings and he's doing all this terrible stuff. I still watch all of those movies going like hoping that Anakin won't turn this time, mm. that he won't become evil. And I feel similarly about Frodo in, in Mount Doom. It's just touching to me and it's heart wrenching and it's sad. And yet it's beautiful that the whole story ends with Gollum. Mm-hmm. Like, I I don't know, man. I just I think that Tolkien just wrote some of the best damn books ever. And I, I just I just can't get over how good they are. Well, I do want to make one last point and then let's go into final scores. And, you know, you had asked me this question about, like, do you think that Tolkien had heard somebody in the trenches of World War One talking about the girl they left behind? Because, you know, Sam sitting on the side of the mountain talking about Rosie and how much he loves her. And it really kind of reframed the way I was looking at this. And I'm sure it's very obvious to people who have studied Tolkien and uh, this movie in particular of the three is such a brilliant kind of World War One and post World War One text. Like it is all about the intense psychological lingering effects of war and what you just called out, Brad, that Frodo ultimately is not successful in his quest. Like the ring gets into the lava of Mount Doom because Gollum falls in like Frodo did not throw that ring in. And I think his decision or his lack of action really, really haunts him. And you you see it when they go back to the Shire at the end of the movie. Like, and I know that in the book, the Shire, like there's a whole um there's a whole chapter called The Scouring of the Shire, where they go back to the Shire and it's been burnt to the ground, basically. And they made the decision to not do that in this movie, to leave the Shire as is. And it's a brilliant decision because what you get is that incredible scene where they're all at the pub together. And Hobbiton is going on like nothing happened. And these four guys have seen some shit and like it has really affected them and they can't adjust back to regular life. Like it is such a brilliant uh, parallel to what these soldiers were experiencing as they came back from World War One. It was the horrors of, you know, the gas and the trenches and no man's land. I really, really think that what they did with this script to kind of reverse what happened in the book actually underlines the point that Tolkien was trying to make even better. And and so I don't know, that really stood out to me. I thought it was a great kind of metaphor for soldiers returning from war. Yeah. I I mean, I love the scouring of the Shire. It is one of my favorite chapters in the books, but I think that that, you know, I talked earlier about a, a choice that Jackson made to go against the books that I didn't like. This is a choice that I do like. It fits the tone of the movies. And like you said, Bob, it fits this theme of like, this is what we were fighting for. But I don't know if we get to enjoy it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I know that Frodo is the one who leaves. He sails, you know, from the Gray Havens off to Valinor, uh, which, <laughs> well, do you want to know more about Valinor, Bob? I don't. I don't. Because we're like at oh, an okay. hour and 10 minutes right now. Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> it's, it's where the Valar live. And, Boo. Uh, <laughs> Anyways, I think that the ending of this movie is brilliant because it does show that trauma sticks around. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a message that is, I don't know, man, it's simultaneously sad. And yet it's so incredibly relatable. I just I have this weird feeling that the world needs to know Mm -hmm. that it's okay that trauma doesn't go away sometimes yeah like it's okay that some wounds never fully heal 
You know, that's part of what makes us human. And the important thing to deal with that is to have friends and family that love you unconditionally surrounding you and caring for you till you pass on someday, whether that's 80 years from now, 20 years from now or one year from now. Like having friends and family around you is is so incredibly important. Oh, I can hear your family in the background right now. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, my daughter might have fallen and bonked or not. Oh, no. All right, man. Well, we're going to wrap up here. I do want to say real quick, a couple years ago, Peter Jackson released a documentary that he'd been working on for years about World War One. They found a ton of footage and they restored it into 4K. They colorized it and they basically had actors come in and they were able to read the lips of what these people were saying. And they gave voice to these figures from the past. And it, it like it's called They Shall Not Grow Old. It is an incredible documentary. You should watch it immediately. Uh, And I think this movie is really a clear indication of where Peter Jackson was going with his fascination with World War One. But on that note, Brad, I'm going to give this movie a nine and a half out of ten. It is still for, for all the things it's juggling for the sheer length and volume of things they have to do. It's nearly perfect. The endings absolutely hit the nail on the head. I have very little to complain about except for Denethor. And I think that this movie could be a little more fun in the kind of middle section. But other than that, man, it's a nine and a half out of ten. Yeah, you know, Bob, I I look back at watching this movie and I just remember being in the theaters as a 13 year old. Like this was like a seminal movie moment for me that like I sat down. The movie theater was so packed and this theater was jam-packed people are sitting in the aisles on the stairs for three and a half hours for this movie uh my parents and my brother and i got separated i had to sit by myself for the movie and as the movie finished there there's so many moments where the audience kind of cheered or groaned or you know they were in it for the whole time but when the credits came up and frodo leaves on the ship i don't know if i've ever heard applause louder than I heard in that moment. I mean, it was just reverberating through this theater. It was a magical moment for me. Mm -hmm. I just think that this movie, it's just perfect for me. And I agree with you 100%. This movie is not perfect. It deserves a nine and a half. But for me, like, I I, kind of love that IMDb doesn't give you half stars because it forces you to think like, yep, I gave this a nine and a half on the podcast. But is it more of a 10, nine and a half or more of a nine, nine and a mm-hmm. half? Mm-hmm. And for me, this one is definitely much more of a 10, nine and a half. And so I'm actually going to give it a 10 out of 10. I, I think that the Lord of the Rings trilogy is perfect mm. and I'll never back down from that. All right. Here's what I'm going to say, because next week is going to be our bracket challenge. So we're going to start with all 32 movies from season four. We're going to whittle it down to one champion. Brad, I don't I don't want to just disqualify a movie, but I will say I don't know how the bracket's going to look yet. I don't think I want a Lord of the Rings versus Lord of the Rings final. So uh, if possible, I think we should go into our bracket challenge with it in mind that only one of them can be in the championship if they get that far. Do you think that's fair? Bob, I'm pretty sure you're trying to commit bracket fraud right now. (laughs) You are trying to influence my vote. It is unacceptable. I will be submitting this audio clip to the uh, the poll authorities 
This is unacceptable, Bob. Yeah, all right. I'm, I'm disappointed in you. All right. I'm, we'll work on you. But uh, <laughs> we want to know what you think, Film and Whiskey Nation. We came out to a 9.75 out of 10 on this movie. If you agree with either of us, if you disagree, if you think Lord of the Rings is terrible, uh, you can certainly try to make your case by reaching out to us on social media, where you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Film Whiskey. Or you can leave us a voicemail. Let your voice be heard on the Film and Whiskey podcast about the one of the greatest films of all time, Return of the King. Any other opinions are silly. Invalid. Uh, but, but very valid, and we would love to listen to them <laughs> uh, when you leave them on our website, which is anchor.fm slash filmwhiskey. We will see you next week for part one of our bracket challenge. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.